Welcome to the Weekly Appellate Report for August 26, 2016. I'm your host, Brian Cardile. I'm very happy to welcome you to this edition of our program, which is used each Friday and features commentary from practitioners, jurists, and academics on appellate issues of salience. This week's guests weigh the impacts of two momentous appellate rulings from this month, one on the ability of federal prosecutors to target medical marijuana purveyors in states where such activity is sanctioned, The other regards whether plaintiff attorneys may rightly receive a percentage of money recovered in common fund class actions, or whether such attorney's fees must be calculated based on the actual number of hours spent working on such cases. First, Aaron Lachant of Nelson Hardiman LLP will discuss the recent Ninth Circuit decision in U.S. v. McIntosh, a consolidated appeal of several prosecutions of medical marijuana purveyors in California and Washington, There, based on a Congressional Appropriations Rider from 2014, the panel unanimously determined that federal funds may not be used to prosecute those who cultivate and sell medical marijuana in accordance with state programs. As Mr. Lachant notes, though, the victory for cannabis cultivators isn't complete. As the appellate panel greenlit federal prosecutions of those not strictly in compliance with state marijuana laws, and also because the appropriations rider upon which the ruling rests is set to expire in September, with his chances of renewal uncertain. Then, Glenn Danis and Ryan Wu of Capstone Law APC will join to chat about the recent Cal Supreme Court ruling in Lafitte v. Robert Half International, which clarified whether class action plaintiffs could recover attorney's fees as a set proportion of a common fund settlement. In that case, plaintiff attorneys settled an employment matter for $19 million and sought court approval of fees in the amount of $6.3 million, or one-third of the total recovery, The court approved that fee award, but a class member objected, arguing that a 1977 California Supreme Court ruling precluded such percentage-based recoveries. Danis and Wu, who helped write an amicus brief opposing that objector, discussed why the high court decided percentage-based compensation is not precluded by that prior ruling, and what that means for plaintiff class action attorneys going forward. But first, and as always, I'd like to remind you that CLE credit is available for your having tuned into this program. You can find a link to a short true-false test at the bottom of the dailyjournal.com page where this program appears. Click through that, take the test, and one hour of CLE credit is yours. With that, then, let's move to my conversation with Aaron Lachant. Very happy to be joined now by Mr. Aaron Lachant, a partner with Nelson Hardiman, LLP. Mr. Lachant works principally in healthcare law, doing work in regulatory and litigation actions pertaining to fraud and compliance with governmental healthcare programs, and also represents a number of medical marijuana dispensaries in actions not unlike the ones that we'll be discussing here momentarily. Mr. Lachant, welcome to the program. Hi, thank you for having me. Really happy to be here. Of course. As an attorney that works in the cannabis industry in the medical marijuana context, I'm sure this is an appeal and a ruling that you must have had your eye on. Yeah, this is an important decision to medical marijuana providers and the attorneys who represent them because it places very clearly some limitations on the government to be able to prosecute these individuals. So it's, it's it's an important decision and it's a good decision and I'm happy to chat about it. Okay, then we'll back up chronologically just a bit here and get to the underlying prosecutions here. I understand this was a consolidated appeal before the Ninth Circuit, and the underlying prosecutions were federal prosecutions of medical marijuana dispensaries in states where medical marijuana is sanctioned. Is that correct? That's correct. So this appeal, 
Um, it's a, a consolidated appeal of, of three actions. Uh, two of the actions were in California, and one of the actions were in Washington. Uh, in total, there were about 15 individuals who were charged. I think the exact number was 14. But it involved five folks who were operating uh, a chain of stores, medical marijuana stores in Los Angeles, as well as nine indoor grows throughout Los Angeles and San Francisco. It also involved a group of individuals who had a massive grow, like a massive outdoor marijuana farm on 60 acres of land in Fresno County. They were growing over 30,000 marijuana plants, as well as five folks in Washington who were who were cultivating and they were growing over a thousand marijuana plants in their locations. So it's 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 a variety of cases and 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 it's important to note from the beginning you know it it looks like on the surface that these folks aren't really engaged in lawful sanctioned conduct pursuant to the state programs on the surface i don't know the court hasn't addressed this issue yet but but just from from my standpoint we know that Los Angeles and San Francisco doesn't authorize these off-site grows and, and give license to them within their jurisdiction. And definitely Fresno County does not authorize large-scale cultivation farms like the type um, addressed in, in the case. So, so from, the, from the beginning, it, it's, we're, we're looking at some questionable conduct on the part of the defendants before we even get into any of the legal issues. And that's from a state law standpoint. Sure. And that adherence to the state law regarding medical marijuana will, as you say, become important as we discuss this ruling. Um, but uh, before we get there, let's discuss the procedural posture getting these prosecutions up into the Ninth Circuit. I understand that these defendants moved for, I believe, either dismissal or injunctions from the district court to um, prevent, essentially, the Department of Justice from from prosecuting these cases, from using federal monies to to prosecute this case. That that is is correct. They're, they were, you know, they filed motions that were sort of a. They were joint motions. They were asking for dismissals or in the alternative um, injunctions on on the prosecutions, based on on the argument that Department of Justice does not have monies to be going after these defendants. In in September or in December 2014, Congress passed what's been called the Rohrbacher Farr Amendment. And, and it was sponsored by um, in the House by Dana Rohrbacher and Sam Farr, and it was an it was an appropriation amendment to the omnibus budget, which basically says that uh, Department of Justice may not use funds to interfere with the implementation of state laws that authorize the use, distribution, possession, or cultivation of medical marijuana, and and the intent of this law was for the federal government to back off on states where medical marijuana activity is authorized and regulated, and it specifically called for cutting off funding to DOJ, for DOJ for going after states and interfering with those laws um, with respect to a medical marijuana program in a state in which it's legal. In the context of the procedure of this appeal specifically, as you mentioned, these are motions to dismiss or motions to enjoin the prosecution based on that appropriations rider. And that nature makes them interlocutory appeals, which I believe Judge O'Scanlan, who wrote this opinion, addressed at the outset of the opinion. The fact that federal appellate courts tend not to have jurisdiction over interlocutory appeals. 
Why is circuit court jurisdiction over such appeals generally not found? And, and if that's the case, why was jurisdiction proper within the Ninth Circuit for these interlocutory appeals? Definitely. So in in general, federal appellate courts usually do not have jurisdiction over appellate issues in criminal case until there has been a final conviction and imposition of sentence. And in other words, it's just a policy matter. They want these criminal cases to work their way through the the courts at the district level. And once everything's been done, there there is a conviction, there is a sentence. The the matter is essentially closed at the district level. Then the 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 appellate courts take over with their authority. There is, however, an exception that does um, allow interlocutory appeals on denials of injunctions or refusals to grant an injunction. And, and typically that, that, that rule, it, it comes up in, in civil court because civil court is, is normally when, an injun- when injunctions arise, when requests for injunctions arise. Very rarely, if, if ever, do, do appellate courts or federal courts step in to stay criminal prosecutions. So it, w- it was a very unique situation where there was an opening for the Ninth Circuit to review based on the denial of an injunction, in this case to stop the prosecution based on the appropriation rider, which normally would not occur in a criminal prosecution just because requests for injunctions and criminal prosecutions are so rare. Okay, so jurisdiction is proper here. Yeah, the court found that jurisdiction was proper based on the review of the direct denial on the request for injunctions. Okay, then moving on to to the merits of this appeal, the the question squarely at issue is, um, I guess, can be separated out into sort of two questions. One, whether the Department of Justice can prosecute people that are following state medical marijuana laws, and then Another question, which was we'll talk to eventually, we'll go back to the district court saying whether these folks were following those laws. But, but when Judge Scanlon gets into the question of whether the Department of Justice can prosecute people following state medical marijuana programs, he, he first sets up a contention made by the government that, well, that appropriations rider prohibits the Department of Justice from you know, interfering with state medical marijuana programs that are that are set up. The government contends that Federal prosecutions of individuals do not do that, that they don't affect the the state's program of of illicit medical marijuana, that only prosecutions by the government of states themselves would so interfere. Tell me what Judge O'Scanlan thinks about that contention. Sure. And, and, and you did a great job setting up. I just want to provide a little bit more context. Sure. So we have the, the Section 542 appropriation, and, and it says that DOJ cannot expend funds to interfere with state medical marijuana programs. And, and, and the court set it up so that they're, they're going to look at that language and figure out what it means. On one hand, you have the government uh, putting forward this very, very narrow view. They, they believe that um, the writer only prevents DOJ from actually going after the states that prosecuting the state's officials or getting injunctions against the state programs and that everything else is, is fair game. 
on, on the other hand, you, ha you have the defendants in this case, and they have this very broad, expansive view of what the rider prohibits, and that's the government going after any purported state medical marijuana activity in any one of these medical marijuana states, whether the person's licensed or unlicensed, just as long as they're participating in the state medical marijuana program, the government can't interfere with their activities. And, and so the way the court addressed it or, and, and rectified these two positions. They, they looked at the language of the writer and, and the prohibition on interference with the state, and they came up with this notion and, and interpreting it that they need to make sure that the state laws are given practical effect. And, and they recognize that the federal government prohibits marijuana activity in all circumstances, but that some of these states have authorized and regulate the activity, even though it's prohibited under federal law. So in order to give practical effect to those states, the court found that exactly what the writer called for, that, that the federal government can't expend funds to prosecute folks who are engaged in authorized activity pursuant to the state program. The, the court found that if the government were allowed to go after individuals who were participating lawfully within the state program and prosecute them, the state programs would be frustrated and the practical effect of, of what they were meant to carry out would be frustrated. So the court rejected the Department of Justice's argument that the rider only prohibited prosecution of, of state entities or state individuals and ruled that the rider also protects individuals who are participating in the state program and are engaged in authorized conduct within the bounds of the state program. I mean, that, that seems pretty darn sensible. If you set up the state program, allowing people to sell a certain thing, and then literally every one of them is liable for federal prosecution, um, then that, that would seems like it would frustrate the program. There's no one to actually do the, the purveying that's, that's prescribed. Definitely. It, it was the common sense, you know, direct with the intent of the amendment, because that's always was the intent of the amendment, was to prevent the, both the government from prosecuting folks involved at the state level who are administering the program, as well as prevent the Department of Justice from prosecuting folks who are participating within the program and following the rules. Gotcha. So people that are following the law will will be generally immune based on this ruling from, from federal prosecution. But as, as we sort of hinted at, this wasn't a total win here for the appellants. Their cases are not thrown out. They could still be prosecuted under under certain circumstances based on this ruling. Could you tell me a bit more about those circumstances? Yeah. So so the the, the court was was very precise in its ruling. It also rejected the defendant's argument as well. The defendants, as I mentioned, were arguing that the rider prohibits Department of Justice from prosecuting anybody who's participating within the state medical marijuana program, whether authorized or unauthorized, legally or illegally, as long as they're operating under the coverage of a state medical marijuana program, the government has no right to prosecute them. And, and the court rejected that as well. The, the court was very clear in, in what the writer prohibits, and, and it prohibits the prosecution of folks who are involved in authorized, and that's the key word here, authorized medical marijuana conduct. As soon as a state medical marijuana participant 
veers outside the state rules and, and the state laws, they are engaged in unauthorized conduct, and and that and they and the Department of Justice can prosecute them and can use funds to prosecute them, and the rider does not prohibit the Department of Justice using monies to go after such individuals. The, the court noted that if Congress wanted to prohibit prosecution of all medical marijuana activity, they, they clearly could have said so within the law. They could have prohibited expenditure of funds on all prosecutions related to medical marijuana conduct. But instead, the, the language is very direct that the rider only applies to unauthorized conduct. So as soon as a, a individual or a group of individuals are involved in medical marijuana conduct that veers outside of what the state is authorizing, they are subject to prosecution. Department of Justice may expend resources to prosecute those individuals, and, and there, there's nothing in the rider that can prevent them prevent that from happening, like in this case. Okay, maybe following up a bit on that point, so federal prosecutions are still a possible thing to happen and in circumstances, like you say, where people are not following strictly the state program. So I would be curious to know how much this ruling might deter federal activity and, and, and DEA operations following medical marijuana dispensaries, perhaps. Um, obviously, they can't prosecute folks that are in line with state law. But, you know, as you say, as soon as, as, soon as they veer outside the state mandates, they are now liable or um, vulnerable to federal prosecution. So do you think though, there will still be a lot of federal operations tracking marijuana operations in, in states where it's um, allowed? So, so personally, I, I don't think this decision is going to have any impact on the number of prosecutions we see from the Department of Justice and, and the types of prosecutions we see uh, from the D Department of Justice. Uh, it, as a general trend, the, the DEA and Department of Justice have shown tremendous restraint um, in prosecuting folks involved in medical marijuana activity in light of the sheer amount of unauthorized medical marijuana activity that occurs in the state. Uh, in, in 2013, the Department of Justice issued a memorandum that sets forth um, the, the types of circumstances in which federal prosecutors should expend resources and should prosecute folks involved in medical marijuana activity. Those circumstances in, include operations that are growing on, on federal land, operations that are fronts for drug trafficking organizations, operations that are involved in organized crimes, operations that are providing marijuana to minors. And by and large, the federal government, ha the prosecutors in the federal government have respected that memorandum. They're, they're not going around the state to play gotcha, looking for ticky-tack violations of the state medical marijuana rules. They, they're going after the egregious operators who, who are setting up unauthorized, unpermitted operations up and down the state who might be involved with cartels or organized crimes. So on, on a day-to-day -day basis, this ruling, which says that in order to prosecute a medical marijuana operation, the government is first going to have to make some preliminary showing that, that the defendants are not engaged in authorized conduct, that, that their conduct is not permitted by state law. I, I don't think they will have any trouble going forward on those prosecutions for the types of cases that they're filing. They're, they're not going after the, the minor violations. They're going after the big-time illegal operators. 
What do you make of the, the author of this opinion here, Judge O'Scanlan, known as the most conservative judge in the Ninth Circuit? And I think it's fair to say that the cause of um, repealing the marijuana prohibition is generally one that falls within kind of the liberal side of the political spectrum. Most of the states with recreational marijuana are, are blue, perhaps with the exception of, of Alaska. Is there anything interesting um, to note with, with this being a very conservative justice writing this opinion? I don't see anything special about the fact that a conservative justice wrote this. I don't see this as a political opinion at all. I think it does a great job actually um, memorializing the status quo of what the law is as far as the contradiction between state and federal law. And the court engaged in a very careful analysis of what the writer provides the context in which the writer passed and the intent behind the writer and, and the this is one of those circumstances where the the court uh, w without issue carried out its duty and, and followed applied the law followed the law and, and reached the right decision without any political motivation whatsoever is the Ninth Circuit the first circuit to weigh in on this question, whether that appropriations writer prohibits federal funds from prosecuting sanctioned medical marijuana activity? It, it's the first appellate circuit I'm aware of. There have been a handful of district court cases that have considered the writer and made rulings on it. In each of those district court cases, the court has allowed the prosecution to go forward. They've denied whatever motion to dismiss. They've denied whatever requests for injunctions were out there based on the grounds that in, in most cases, the defendants who were being prosecuted were were involved in unauthorized medical marijuana conduct. And, and this just goes back to my earlier point, you know, the, the types of cases that the federal government is filing is against the most egregious actors within this space. And, and so it's been very easy for those other courts to reach, a, to reach a decision on the merits that the appropriation doesn't apply and, and that the prosecutions can go forward. There's only, aside from this decision, which, which you know, doesn't say one way or another whether or not these folks can be prosecuted, it remands it back to the district court to hold a hearing on whether they were engaged in lawful or unlawful authorized or unauthorized conduct. There's only been one district court case that I'm aware of, and it was out of the Northern District of California involving uh, Marin Alliance. And, and the court in that case ruled that that the um, a writer prohibited the Department of Justice from prosecuting the Marin Alliance, and the case was dismissed. This ruling seems to, to rest a bit on some tenuous or perhaps shifting legal ground. Obviously, you know, this isn't a, a Tenth Amendment ruling saying that the federal government must just stay out of state's business when it comes to mer medical marijuana generally. Um, you know, it, It's based on this appropriations rider, which I think you said it was passed in late 2014, I believe, um, then renewed. But at some point it will expire, right? So if, if there's a budget bill that's passed and it does not include a rider such as this one, then it seems like that would um, undermine this ruling and then make licit marijuana um, purveyors once again vulnerable to federal prosecution. Yeah, and, and that's really, really important here. I, it was at the end of 
the decision in and one of the final footnotes I, I believe it, it was footnote number five but but the court gives a very clear warning to medical marijuana providers who are out there and and this is this is the to me this is the most important part of the decision because it, it reaffirms exactly what what the the status quo is from a legal standpoint and what type of risk these operators are facing on a day-to-day basis. And this is the part of the decision that nobody in the media is focusing on. But uh, the, the final footnote, the, the court says you know, th- this rider doesn't change federal law. Federal law still prohibits medical marijuana activity. There's a five-year statute of limitations on it. Um, this this rider is a year-to-year rider. It's it's basically a funding provision. As soon as that funding provision changes, uh, whether Congress uh, chooses not to renew it and decides that medical marijuana enforcement is a, is a high priority again, those folks could still face prosecution in the future. Those folks could face prosecution based on a change of policy coming from the attorney general's office or or based on a change of presidency the the industry as a whole has become very complacent um, during the Obama administration and, and their hands-off approach to medical marijuana activity. And, and most folks seem to feel that the, the genie's out of the bottle and, and it's never going back in. But if there is a, a President Trump elected and he appoints Attorney General Chris Christie, who has vowed to shut down all marijuana activity across the country as a violation of federal law, Things can change very quickly based on who's in charge. So the, so the court's very clear, clearly warning the folks who are involved in this industry that nothing's changed. Everything is still illegal under federal law, and, and you're participating in this industry at your own risk. And, and if anything, you know, based on the recent refusal from the DEA to reschedule, it, it gives the ball back to Congress. And, and with the court saying that the only way this is really going to change and, and give the folks in this industry um, the, the peace of mind that they want, it is a, a change of federal policy coming from Congress where cannabis is removed from Schedule One on the Controlled Substances Act. Sure. So clearly this ruling is not a, a watershed moment for the cannabis industry. It, it's, a, it's a very short-term victory, just, just based on the nature of the appropriation, um, the, the year-to-year lifespan of the appropriation. This decision is only as good as long as the current appropriation is in place, which, by the way, it expires in September, and as long as Congress is willing to renew it each year. Sure. Is that the most important takeaway for attorneys like yourself who, who represent medical marijuana dispensaries to note that you know this is not a wholesale endorsement of their activity? You know, I, I think the the most important takeaway for attorneys who are representing these types of, of businesses, and it's actually something we've been telling them forever, it, it's the importance of having some sort of authorization to participate in a state medical marijuana program, whether it's coming directly from your state, like in Washington or Colorado, and soon to be California in 2018, or if it's coming at a local level, um, like like it is here in California, where everything is regulated at the local level. It, it's important to have that 
piece of um, paper that says you can engage in this type of activity because the, and, and that you actually follow the rules for the medical marijuana activity within the state because that's what's that's the important piece that's going to keep the federal prosecutors at bay in the event they want to prosecute a medical marijuana entity. This decision stresses the importance of being authorized by your state or municipality to engage in medical marijuana activities and to strictly follow the rules because the decision makes clear as soon as you deviate from from whatever conduct you're authorized to participate in, the federal government may expend funds under this rider to prosecute the medical marijuana activity. Okay, maybe just one last one. Do you think there's any chance uh, the government petitions the, the U.S. Supreme Court to take a look at this ruling? I, I think it's zero just because of the year-to-year lifespan of the rider. I, it's, by the time the Supreme Court looks at it, the, the rider at issue will have expired. Okay. okay. Well, certainly an interesting case, U.S. v. McIntosh, Mr. Aaron Lachant of Nelson Hardiman. Really appreciate you being on the program to discuss it with us. Thank you so much. more time. That was Aaron Lachant from Nelson Hardiman, LLC, speaking about U.S. v. McIntosh out of the Ninth Circuit. We'll move now to my conversation with Glenn Danis and Ryan Wu on the case of Lafitte versus Robert Half International. We're joined now by Glenn Danis and Ryan Wu. Mr. Danis is a partner with Capstone Law APC, and Mr. Wu is a senior counsel there. The two helped author a amicus brief, in this case, the Lafitte versus Robert Half International, Mr. Danis works principally on the firm's appeals and has argued before the California Supreme Court and the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. Uh, Mr. Wu has a lot of experience handling the firm's complex motion work and in seeking settlement approvals for class action lawsuits. Gentlemen, thanks for being on the program. Thanks very much for having us. Uh, Now, I like to think that uh, a fair amount of the content on this podcast uh, is of interest to attorney listeners, but this seems to have an added element, at least for plaintiff side attorneys. This case is all about how attorneys can get paid and how, how much they can get paid, right? That's correct. Okay. Well, then let's go ahead and jump right in. We can walk a bit through the underlying action here. And so I understand this was an employment law case brought several years ago by uh, a class of plaintiffs against Robert Half International, a staffing agency. And litigation proceeds for, I believe, a few years, or maybe several years, and then eventually a settlement is reached. Could, could you tell me a bit about that settlement? Uh, sure. This stemmed from several different actions that were filed and litigated for uh, quite a long time, and uh, ultimately, a settlement uh, offer was accepted for $19 million, roughly, uh, as an all-inclusive settlement, setting up a uh, fund that would be paid out entirely uh, to the class and to plaintiff's counsel. And in the settlement agreement, uh, plaintiff's counsel were able to obtain uh, an agreement for, you know, up to $6.3 million for the counsel, which included three firms, primarily one firm, but the other, the other firms were also included, and an agreement from Robert Half not to oppose an application for up to that amount. Anyone that has some, some basic arithmetic competence will, will note that $6.3 is about exactly one-third of the, the $19 million. Yeah, that, that, that's correct. I mean, the, the substantive causes of action were, were basically, these were pretty standard wage and hour causes of action, mainly misclassification, 
And in many ways, this was very similar to a lot of the work that we do at our firm and sort of to uh, California wage and hour practice in general. It was a, you know, up to a third of the what's referred to as the gross settlement fund was to be allocated for fees, and Robert Half agreed not to challenge it up to that amount. And I understand the trial court approved the attorney's fees of, of that amount, right? Yes, that's correct. And actually, the trial court, I think, was unusually careful in the way that it scrutinized the, the request and the settlement because there was a hearing, and then the trial court asked for a number of uh, further issues to be briefed, including the range of possible outcomes in counsel's view, reasons why a, a multiplier on any sort of lodestar or the amount of time and effort that counsel put into the case would have been, uh, would have been appropriate, and several other issues. So the, uh, the trial court was, was quite thorough in the way that it analyzed the, uh, the fee request and the settlement itself and ultimately overruled the objection um, from uh, Mr. Schoenbrunn's client and uh, granted approval of the settlement and the fee award. And it was, it's that objection then that became the centerpiece of this litigation now, the case that was just ruled on by the California Supreme Court, right? That class member bringing a suit about the, the settlement approval? Yes, that's right. It, it was that that objector, uh, you know, Mr. Mr. Schoenbrunn's client, um, made uh, a number of arguments, quite a few of them, to the Court of Appeal. And the Court of Appeal entertained uh, a good number of them. And then that set of uh, arguments was kind of whittled down um, to a much more narrow question that was taken up by the California Supreme Court and, uh, and just recently decided. What uh, precisely was that question? So, you know, there, there were, I mean, for, for those of us who really get deep into these issues, there were actually, the Court of Appeal uh, opinion was actually, in some ways, even more interesting because it dealt with some issues that we had not seen dealt with by California law, um, including sort of the timing of uh, an objection to an attorney fee award and uh, the propriety of a, what's called the clear sailing provision. But ultimately, the, the California Supreme Court took up the issue of whether when you have a common fund settlement or a settlement that creates a common fund, such as this one, whether it's appropriate to uh, issue a fee award as a percentage of that, of that uh, common fund, and uh, a subsidiary question being whether it's appropriate to cross-check that against the lodestar, what's referred to as the lodestar multiplier uh, method, which is the competing method that the objector was claiming really should be the only one applied. Uh, but the, the question taken up was whether it's appropriate to do the percentage of the fund cross-checked by the lodestar multiplier. I believe there was some California Supreme Court precedent that the objector was citing as supportive of his view that uh, percentage um, fee was not permitted in, in a common fund class action like this. Do I have that correct? What, uh, what case was that? I believe it was Serrano versus, versus Priest from a few decades ago. Yeah, Serrano versus Priest from 1977. And that was a case involving um, school financing and whether or not um, a method of doing that was constitutional or not. So it was a, sort of a private attorney general case. Um, and in that case, uh, there's a footnote that says that the, uh, the starting point of fee calculation is the lodestar method. And so that language is used a lot in fee applications. And um, Schoenbrunn seized on it, or you know, his client seized on it, to say that that's the exclusive method for calculating fees uh, under California law. 
and therefore the appellate court and the trial court, which use the percentage method, uh, erred and required reversal. We've mentioned him a few times now, the objector's counsel, Mr. Lawrence Schoenbrunn. I understand that he's the executive director of a, an organization called Class Action Watch, and I think he's been fighting this particular fight against certain types of recoveries by plaintiff's attorneys and class actions for a rather long time. Is that correct? Yeah, we, we don't deal with him directly. This is sort of the first time we've had interaction with him. But uh, my understanding is that he's uh, uh, an activist. In fact, um, I think another case where he's representing an objector uh, was recently granted a uh, review by the California Supreme Court called Hernandez versus Mueller and Restoration Hardware. So that's about the standing of objectors to appeal. From what we understand, he's definitely a class action um, activist seeking to sort of reform the laws he sees it to be more fair to class action uh, absent class members. I'm obviously un- unsuccessful in his attempt here. One thing that struck me a bit as interesting in this ruling is you know, clearly the fact that the objector he was relying on this Toronto versus Priest case from 1977 means that there's been a question that's been open since then as to whether or not, in fact, a percentage recovery from a common fund case is, is permissible. That seems like a long time to go without there being a, a final word on that question. How is it that uh, that's remained an open question for so long, or at least open enough that the California Supreme Court had to take it up in this case? Yeah, it's, it's sort of a matter of... Uh, the, the strange history of class action jurisprudence. I mean, the fact is that from the, the reform of the, uh, the federal rules of civil procedure in 1966 that really created the modern class action uh, until the early 70s, it was really a percentage of the fund method was what was used to calculate attorney's fees in class actions. Mostly those were quite fair, but in some instances it yielded um, results that at least to those who don't practice in this area or to non-lawyers seemed really uh, wildly uh, enriching to the attorneys and created a perception that really, you know, that class action lawyers were being overpaid or weren't doing a sufficient amount of work. So in the early 70s, uh, I believe it was around 1973 with a Third Circuit case, uh, there was a huge push towards the Lodestar method. And really, for the rest of the 70s and into the, into the mid-80s, you know, the Lodestar method was used in even in common fund cases, the idea being that it created some objectivity, it created uh, the appearance, I think, of really tying uh, the lawyer's work to the way that they are paid and not creating these few but highly publicized windfalls that attracted uh, a lot of negative attention and erode the prestige of the bar. So Serrano and the the California Supreme Court in Lafitte was quite clear about the fact that Serrano was really a product of these of these sort of larger trends. And, you know, Serrano happened to fall right within this period of time where the Lodestar method was what was being used. After 1985 and the Third Circuit's task force uh, gave its recommendations, most courts, federal and state, have really been using what you know, it's a bit of a misnomer referring to it as a blended method, but really the, you know, when you have a, a common fund using the percentage method with a lodestar multiplier cross-check. And that really, in practice, has been what the federal courts have been doing and what the state courts have been doing. And, you know, even in the last years since Serrano, um, 
you know, the California courts have been applying, you know, percentage of the fund method with a lodestar cross-check. There were a couple of outlier cases where there was some language that, that Mr. Schoenbrunn seized upon that made it seem as if that that might not be the case or that the uh, percentage method might still be in disrepute. Those cases are quite easily explained by the fact that those, those didn't involve real common funds. Those involved really, I think, constructive common funds or, or situations where uh, it was a claims-made settlement, the, the total payout was unknown, and there was not really a fund from which the attorney's fees could be awarded. So it was a bit of an illusion that it actually lasted this long, but it is true that the California Supreme Court had not fully weighed in on this precise issue in this manner. Right. I mean, as a matter of practice, and you know, most of these class actions in state courts are in the complex court division in the state courts, and they uniformly use the percentage method when requested. So for practitioners, this is not really an issue. In fact, I think when Lafitte was taken up, there was a bit of, uh, of a surprise from the commentators that, you know, that this was still an open issue. But, you know, now with Lafitte, we thankfully closed the door on any uh, attempt by objectors to sort of seize on dicta to deny attorneys their fees. Can we just dig in a little bit further into exactly what that Lodestar method is? At base, it sounds like it's an attempt to um, to ground an attorney's fee based upon the, the number of hours an attorney worked multiplied by, by some reasonable rate. But as, as you've hinted, at, in this case, there's ways that the hour times rate method can be enhanced or, or multiplied based on different different factors, correct? Like the, the risk an attorney might not recover anything in, in a case or um, the novelty that a particular case might entail. That's right. I mean, you know, it, it is fairly straightforward, and there is some wiggle room, I think, as you noted in the, in the multiplier. I mean, basically, it's the number of hours reasonably spent, and of course, that sometimes in a contested motion can be subject to, uh, to some disagreement, what's reasonable, times the attorney's reasonable rate, and again, rates can be something that in, in an adversarial proceeding there can be some disagreement about, and then with the, uh, afterwards, the application of either a positive or a negative multiplier, which is supposed to account for uh, the type of results reached, also, you know, for types of contingency, you know, multiple levels of contingency, novelty of the issues, et cetera. But, you know, I think one of the points that was interesting that the California Supreme Court made was that the objectivity really, to some extent, has been overstated. While there is some objectivity to it, perhaps that might be more to non-lawyers. You know, lawyers understand that even these inputs into the Lodestar method can be very fraught. But that is essentially what it is. The hours times the rates, you know, with either a positive, negative, or no multiplier. With all that sort of as preface, and we've hinted on, on the result here already, could you walk me through the opinion here? What did the court have to say about whether Serrano prevented uh, percentage recovery? Well, I mean, the court, you know, the court was pretty clear about a couple things. You know, one of them was that Serrano does not prevent the application of the percentage method of calculating attorney's fees where there's a true common fund. That was a unanimous holding of this decision, and really it couldn't be much clearer. So Serrano does not prevent that. And Serrano was a case involving fee shifting, and it was a private attorney general doctrine case under 1021 of the CCP, and essentially that that's not going to be a, a hindrance here. 
there are other upshots of the opinion, but as far as whether Serrano prevents that, no, that was pretty clear. And affirmed the lower courts in full. Well, Lafitte and his counsel are able to get the $6.3 million in fees that they requested. Uh, one portion of the majority opinion that I thought was a bit interesting, I might like to tease out slightly, is the court saying that the two different methods of attorney fee calculation, the percentage method and the lodestar method, contrast in their, their primary foci or focuses, um, with one focusing on the actual work completed, the hours put in, and one seemingly more concerned with the ultimate results achieved. Um, could you walk me through a bit of the contrast this, the court is describing and perhaps um, what some of the benefits or drawbacks are to those different um, foci? I would say that, you know, the court correctly said that, that the focus of the uh, percentage method is really on the result obtained, and the, and the focus of the Lodestar method is really on the, the effort put in. Um, and, you know, there are, as I just said a minute ago, you know, there is in, within the multiplier, uh, on the Lodestar multiplier, there is built in some, some ability to consider, you know, the results Essentially, those are the two different focuses of the two methods, uh, one being results and one being kind of the, the effort put into it. At the same time, it seems odd that there's, I mean, maybe there isn't really so much of a tension there. I, you know, it seems like Mr. Schoenbrunn's contention is that attorneys should get paid for the work that they've done, the hours they've completed, a reasonable rate for the, the work they've done. But on the other hand, it, it seems like people will hire attorneys to, to pursue their cause with the hopes that they'll win the case. I can't imagine a person would hire an attorney and then be upset that the attorney won the case too quickly and then, you know, want a certain amount of his feedback. Well, I mean, I, you know, I think, I think you're right. I mean, you know, I don't think there's a client anywhere who really cares at all about how much effort is put into a case. What clients care about are results. Our job at our firm, you know, and I would imagine for almost all rational plaintiff's lawyers is to deliver the best results possible for the class and to do it sort of as quickly and efficiently as possible. So, you know, the idea that the client ever cares about the, the effort put in, I think, is a bit strange. I almost see it as being a tension between Schoenbrunn and his ilk really representing sort of an ideological strand of the public who are may be concerned about outlier cases where there might be a windfall. I mean, I don't know if my colleague disagrees with me, but that, that seems to be sort of what's really going on here. It's sort of this one very specific element, perhaps, of kind of public opinion that's really in tension with what the clients want. Because, as you said, what the clients want is the best result possible as quickly as possible, and that's really all they care about. Yeah, and I, I think, you know, the cases that support the percentage method, they, they, they talk about this idea that the incentives of the council are aligned with the class members. You know, the higher the recovery, the more in fees. So, so class council has the incentive to get the highest recovery possible for class members. Now, if you're sort of awarding fees solely on the, on the Lodestar method, there's more of an incentive, not to say that all plaintiff lawyers do this, but you create this incentive for attorneys to sort of churn the file, not deliver results as quickly as they, they might. So that's sort of a problem, you know, with the Lodestar method. On the other hand, I, I do want to sort of clarify that the Lodestar method sometimes is very, very good in certain kinds of cases. If, if you have a discrimination suit where maybe the amount at stake isn't a whole lot, discrimination suit, you get $40,000 for a client, but you spent $500,000 doing it because the employer fought you tooth and nail. 
in that case, you know, you would apply to the court for, you know, your fees under the Lodestar method, and your client shouldn't be deprived of his or her attorney getting their fees for the work done. If you don't do that, then people won't take on these cases, take on, you know, discrimination cases, other cases where there's a small amount in recovery. So the Lodestar method works really well in certain kinds of cases. In sort of class action cases where there's sort of a gigantic recovery, typically it, it doesn't work as well. Yeah, and, and just, you know, one additional thing, to play devil's advocate, there is an argument that the Lodestar method creates an incentive for marginal increases over time. And I know that, you know, the opinion talked a little bit about that, and I, I think that maybe that's sort of the other side of the coin to the, to the unfortunate incentive to turn the file and really just kind of extend the case. But, you know, there is an argument that the Lodestar method does create that, that other incentive, which is good, of, you know, not incentivizing people to settle too quickly and to keep the value of their time high. But, you know, I think the court ended up coming out saying that that is really just a, a lesser consideration to some extent, that the amount that will be uh, realized at the margins like that uh, in a common fund case really can't be what, what drives our concerns. You know, I mean, like what Ryan was just saying a minute ago, the Lodestar method of calculating fees seems to be great for fee-shifting cases, for cases that, that don't realize a large pot of money for a large group of people uh, in order to continue to incentivize publicly beneficial litigation. But it does not seem to really be the great primary way to award uh, fees under class actions that, that do get a pot of money. And, and of course, this, this settlement in Lafitte was kind of a, a, you know, an excellent recovery in a lot of different ways because there was no reversion and it was going to be paid out entirely. And, you know, there was, there were no contingencies. It was just, you know, a straight $19 million common fund that was obtained for the class. And it seems really to make much more sense for the funds to come directly out of that. Maybe the benefits and drawbacks of these two methods is not Withstanding, aren't there possible circumstances where this sort of agree- agreement would be determined not by you know a court weighing the pros and cons of each, but just at the beginning of representation by the attorney and the client? It seems like in this case, I, as it seems that the uh, the one third award was part of the the settlement, but you know, and that's sort of subsequently brought on this litigation. But couldn't the parties have agreed at the, the very outset to say, okay, this is going to be a percentage recovery, and then we wouldn't have had to to have this case go through all the courts? Well, you know, I think, I think you know, class action attorneys and their clients do have fee agreements. But the, the problem here is that absent class members are also involved. So even if the client says, okay, uh, one-third of my recovery can be used as attorney's fees, you know, we still have the problem of absent class members. So that's where the court, as the guardian of the absent class members, come in to sort of determine whether or not the negotiated fees are reasonable. Whether that can be done at the outset of the case, it's difficult because one thing is that plaintiffs and defendants negotiate the settlement. So, you know, you're asking the defendant to sort of set a fee award at the outset of the case. That's not easy to do. I mean, I think, I think there are certain kinds of actions where, where that's done. Securities litigation, uh, medical malpractice, uh, pharmaceutical suits where there's sort of institutional clients that are negotiating. Uh, with the plaintiffs or there's sort of bidding among different class counsel, that's where you see the fees being set at the outset of the case. In sort of these wage and hour cases where the recovery 
is, you know, between one and ten million typically, and the fees are between, you know, three hundred thousand and three or four million typically. You don't really see that. So, um, you know, there, there are no institutional clients. Defendants aren't willing to sort of bargain with you at the beginning of the case. That's sort of where the problem lies. I mean, I think you can potentially sort of set some sort of range. You know, you can maybe, you know, in a, in a subsequent case, the court can, can sort of say, well, look, in this type of case, a wage and hour case, where the recovery is between one million and five million, the percentage should be say thirty percent with an adjustment upward or downward depending on the circumstances of the case. That's something that the, the court can try to do. I mean there's already, you know, in the Ninth Circuit a benchmark of twenty five percent where, you know, in general the presumption is that a class action attorney is awarded twenty five percent unless there are circumstances that sort of allow the court to adjust it upward or downward. So that's sort of one way we can go about it. Yeah, I was just going to say, I, I think that, you know, the way to address the concern that I know Justice Liu brings up in his concurrence about having an ex-ante uh, agreement early on in the case, like Ryan was just saying, I think that that might work in a securities case that's much less likely to work in a consumer case or a wage and hour suit, but the solution to that might be the court adopting, let's say, a 33% benchmark, uh, or certainly a 33% benchmark with a perhaps a sliding scale like the Ninth Circuit has done, where in mega fund cases the percentage goes down to prevent windfalls and to, you know, like we're seeing in the Volkswagen case right now, for instance, where, you know, I know that the fee application is only seeking, you know, something like 5% or some much smaller percentage than would normally apply in the Ninth Circuit where they, uh, I believe the Ninth Circuit follows the 25% benchmark usually. So, yeah, I, I, I do think, I think adopting a benchmark or a presumptive benchmark like 33% in state court would be a very good way to effectively have that ex-ante negotiation in, in many of these cases without having to have the transaction costs of uh, slogging down the litigation to try and perhaps, I mean, I don't even know as a practical matter how one would have, you know, spoken to an objector uh, early on in the case like this to have made sure that, you know, he or she was on board with it. So I think that that might be the way to go about that. Maybe we could flesh out Justice Liu's concurrence just a bit more. As he said, he wrote separately, but he voted with the majority on the result here. Um, is that his principle? Concerning, he took the opportunity to voice sort of a, a few different concerns about the way that the attorney's fees are awarded in cases like this and noted that sometimes windfalls, as you say, could erode public trust in the judicial system. Um, do you share any of the concerns that he has with, with the practice of attorney fee awards in, in, in these types of cases? And do you think there is some room for improvement? Yeah, I mean, I, I think we, we certainly share those concerns. You know, we very much want there to be transparency and the public's trust to be conferred on the bench and the bar uh, in these types of cases, and for there certainly not to be the type of view or the, the perspective that seems to have been in the late 60s and early 70s, yeah, we, we definitely do share that concern. And I think that where you, know, you can have the early discussion uh, to mimic the market or to emulate what the marketplace would be for these legal services, uh, early on in the case, that certainly is, is a good thing. But, you know, I just think that in, like Ryan was saying, you know, in the typical smaller wage and hour action where maybe 
there are half a million dollar worth of fees and maybe $2 million worth of damages at issue, it, it just seems that that's much less likely to happen. And perhaps not a sophisticated class rep, that might be much less likely to happen than, say, in the, the securities context. Uh, it just might be much tougher as a practical matter to get that negotiation actually to happen. You know, one of the other things that he pointed out that we, I, I think that we, we do think is a great idea is in, you know, mega fund cases to have that sort of guardian of the class. You know, that idea is one that I think makes a lot of sense, again, in the much bigger cases, like the Volkswagen case or the unintended acceleration Toyota case or, or some of these sort of multi-billion dollar cases, but that probably wouldn't make a lot of sense in, in a run-of-the-mill consumer or wage and hour action. I think that idea is great, um, except the expenses of paying for some, something like that would come out of the fund. So the class members, each paying a share of his or her recovery to, to someone who's, who's sort of monitoring the fees, pouring over, billing, so I think in a, in a settlement of over you know, $20 million, $30 million, that, that would be economical. In a smaller settlement, that probably wouldn't be. Maybe just one last one. If you had to pick out a couple, what would you say the, the most significant impacts of this ruling are for her plaintiff side class action attorneys? Is it just the, the assurance now that this method of obtaining attorney's fees has gotten its imprimatur of the, the California Supreme Court? Well, I'll throw out a couple of things that struck me, and I'm sure Ryan's got a couple of others. Not not to run over the same territory again, but one thing that's, you know, that, that we definitely think was was the valuable upshot of the opinion was the fact that it reiterated that there's no need for uh, voluminous uh, billing records to be submitted in connection with fee requests, which really is one of the things that, that wastes judicial resources. You know, in this case, the trial court asked for an additional declaration from uh, counsel detailing the work, and of course the trial counsel is in the position to know what work was done in its courtroom. So this point about you know, there's not a real reason to require billing records, which was a, something that, that Mr. Schoenbrunn was was seeking to have imposed as a bright line rule, which I, I think would have just, you know, immeasurably slowed down litigation and created a huge uh, amount of extra costs that ultimately are borne by the class. So that was one uh, big upshot. And the other is about the multiplier, you know, um, really endorsing a either 2.03 or 2.13 multiplier in a case that is, you know, a good, solid settlement in the wage and hour uh, context is helpful because, frankly, there are courts, I think, that, that are loath to apply the multiplier sometimes thinking that it's some sort of a gift. But as the opinion um, makes clear, if a uh, plaintiff's counsel is not given any multiplier, it really is not at all compensating for some of the costs that were taken on. And I, I think it emphasized that the, the, the Lodestar multiplier cross-check is, is just that. It's a cross-check. It's not um, meant to be sort of a second method of calculating fees. It's meant to sort of check against uh, a potential windfall. So the, the court said, you know, if there are no extraordinary multipliers, generally you shouldn't reduce counsel's fees based on the lodestar cross-check. So I, I thought that was important. I think the other point is that a lot of class actions go to the district courts, uh, the federal district courts, because of the Class Action Fairness Act. And when it comes to settlements, a lot of district courts apply the 25% the benchmark. 
In fact, when it's sitting in diversity, it has to apply California law. So I think Lafitte, you know, sort of clarified what California law is. California law doesn't have a 25% benchmark. The district court, you know, has broad discretion to sort of determine what uh, percentage is reasonable, but it, it shouldn't sort of, you know, strictly apply a benchmark the way that some district courts have done. So I think, I think that might, might be uh, its biggest impact going forward. Certainly sounds like an impactful ruling with Feed First Robert Half International. Thanks, gentlemen, very much for being on the podcast to talk about it. Mr. Ryan Wu and Glenn Danis from Capstone Law, APC. Thanks very much for having us. It's been a pleasure. And with that, our program for August 26th, 2016 is complete. I'd like to take this opportunity to tender sincere gratitude to all of my guests, Aaron Lachant from Nelson Hardiman, and Glenn Danis and Ryan Wu from Capstone Law APC. I'd also like to thank members of my production staff here, including Nick Sonnenberg, Ellen Ireland, Dominic Fricasa, and of course our editor, David Houston. I'm your host, Brian Cardile. Look forward to speaking to you next Friday. Have a great week. <music>